You're listening to The Recovered Life Show, the show that helps people in recovery live their best recovered lives. And here is your host, Damon Frank. And welcome back to The Recovered Life Show. Damon Frank here with my co-pilot, Christina Dennis. How are you doing this fine Friday morning, Christina? I am doing well, Damon Frank. How are you feeling? I am doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. Sorry, everyone who's listening here. We uh, were off uh, on Wednesday because I was not feeling well. Right. So, uh, so brand new show today. Thank goodness. But uh, yeah. So everybody who emailed and everybody reached out. Thank you so much. I had a lot of people in recovered life say, "Hey, no Wednesday show," and it was because I was not feeling well. So. Welcome to Friday, Christina. There you go. Happy Friday. And I'm proud of you for taking care of yourself. And I love Fridays. I say it every Friday. It just feels like the world gets a little lighter. So happy Friday. I love Fridays. I love Fridays because, you know, our favorite day of the week here on in Recovered Life is on Mondays because we start anew again and we have another day clean and sober and another week right? To, uh, to, to do what we want to do. So uh, welcome everybody on this Friday show. Uh, it is April 8th, 2022. It's episode 95. We've got a great show for you here uh, today. Christina, you found this amazing uh, US News and World Report article we wanted to discuss about yes. empathy. And also we've got a brand new segment of TGIF Sober where we go over everything that happened this week. And there was a lot of stuff that happened this week on the Recovered Life Network. Such good stuff. But before we get to the first segment, I want to let everybody know this show is being brought to you by Recovered Life contributors and people like you. So please keep liking, sharing, following, and leave us a comment so we can keep bringing you the kind of content that you like. Also visit info.recoveredlife.us where you can leave a donation that will help us to continue helping others and join the network, which is completely free, where we continue the conversation. That is info.recoveredlife.us. Such a great, you know, it, the, the Recovered Life uh, Network is so amazing because, you know, it's this community of like-minded people, Christina. And, you know, when I wasn't feeling good this week, I, you know, I have to be honest, I, I, I just was not in a position where I could do a lot of online stuff, but I, you know, I had a little break and I was like, you know what, I'm feeling good enough that I can go online, got my app, went on and started interacting with people, a bunch of new members, which was cool. And a bunch of people that had joined that were talking about recovery and people sharing, you know, and I was able really quickly to just kind of tap in, even though I was out of town for a couple of days and then sick, just tap into uh, a community of people and, you know, start talking high level recovery stuff. I, I just, I love that. So true. And I love that you could do it when you're out of town too, because it is like a home group in your pocket. It really is. So love the people that get in there. If you get there, make sure to follow me and then you can get your content uh, straight once I post it. So it's beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we hope to see everybody there. So let, let's get into this first segment here because I, I I love this article you sent me. You sent me an article from the U.S. News and World Report, and it is by Diana uh, Krishnan, and it was just written uh, in March. And it, it, the title of it is Let Empathy Inform Our Approach to Addiction, a Public Health Approach That Scraps Judgment and Stigma Can Help Curb America's Addiction Crisis. I, I love this. I love the title. And as I got into the article, a lot of really good stuff here. 
So good. She is a social worker, but she also is a mental health registered nurse. And one of the things that she brought up about her experience working directly in recovery and addiction was that addiction is shaped by biology, psychology, life circumstances, and societal factor. And what we must understand, if you want to start creating some empathy, is that we must understand that it's a function of the brain. And what happens in the human brain is all, everybody's brain is wired for addiction, which might be shocking to some people. But what happens is the reward, the reward circuits work with your memory to go after dopamine, right? So we're not exactly sure why one person can partake and not get addicted and another can, but we know it has to do with all those factors. And that alone should shape everybody's opinion when it comes to addiction. And for everybody who is listening on the podcast here or replay, I did put up uh, this on the screen. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so everybody can access this uh, U.S. News and World Report uh, article by Diana Krishnan. You know, what I loved about this is I, I started reading this, Christina, and I'm going to highlight some of the stuff here on screen. But, you know, what I what you know when i hear about harm reduction you definitely right. understand it if you if you are in recovery or if you work in recovery you understand that there is such a thing as harm reduction it's like you know getting people kind of tailoring people to a place where they're not killing themselves right so like i yes. know that sounds kind of crazy for people who are not you know in the addiction space but um what what i realized was how much stigma there is to people in the addiction uh, that are suffering from addiction, even with people who have recovered from addiction, like you right. and I, like right. you start to say, it's like, well, you know what? Yeah, there is a, there is a still a stigma about addiction and it, it always seems to come down to a willpower issue. I think primarily with people who, you know, especially public officials I've noticed are people who are not in that, that have, have never recovered from addiction or never have been through anything like this. They think it's purely a willpower issue. And I think it's easy to make this judgment call to say, well, you know what? It's uh, it, it's just if only they could be stronger. But what I right. loved about this and you had pointed out to me on a call that we had earlier is that there's some scientific proof that we're just wired for addiction. Absolutely, This isn't a willpower issue at all. Not at all. And it's the function of the brain to figure out the quickest way to get that dopamine. It's a survival skill in all of us. Uh, dopamine is the chemical that allows you to search for something and move forward in your life. And we're not exactly sure the markers, but they're getting closer. And what she did in this article, and I do hope everybody will go and read it because I think that it's so important to the conversation is that we tolerate some addictions fairly easily in our society. In fact, we make a lot of money off of those, you know, addictions. She actually shows up and talks about uh, sugar, which is a neurotoxin. There is a lot of industry around promoting sugar, and we tolerate that in people. Uh, the other one was shopping, which we've done shows on shopping addiction. And we know that, oh, that's just a free marketplace. That's perfectly fine. But we have this idea about certain heavier drugs where it is completely stigmatized. And, I, and once you realize that we all have the capability 
of becoming addicted to something that probably many of us are addicted to safer things or more acceptable things, I hope that it will continue to promote empathy when you're thinking about it. If you have a family member or if you are the person who has shown up like myself with an addiction to a substance, that we can hold our, our head up a little high and get- Well, I think, yeah. And I think what's important about this and about the whole empathy conversation is that- um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's a delicate area. You don't want to be empathetic enough where you don't help people, right? right. Where it's just like, well, right. yeah. you know, it it's happens so so. or whatever, because, you know, I think what most people don't understand, and this goes to the willpower thing is that most people that are in active addiction, I would say all people that are in active addiction are trapped that they didn't really choose to be there. They got into a space which they feel that they cannot get out of. And I think that this non-empathetic approach, uh, I think works when, you know, and you see this in 12 step groups where people it's like, you got to make a decision. You either right. want to get sober or you don't want to get sober. I think that is empathy. Like, cause you know, when I, I remember when I first came into the program, people were not, you know, in 12 step groups, they weren't as, nice and loving. They weren't as empathetic, nope. to be quite honest. They, they were very nope. blunt. But one person told me and said, you know, I love you enough to tell you the truth right, about what's going on. I, it would be easier for me to lie to you and tell you that everything's going to be okay. But I think, you know, one of the things that we're talking about, this dopamine response, we're talking about people being trapped. We're talking about what is the best way out of this with the stigma. I love this idea of empathy because empathy is something that everybody can access. It's not learn. like we need some sort of public resource for it, right? right? Everybody can access it. And we can learn. And, you know, the function of empathy is not to take away the pain of somebody else. It is to say, I'm willing to sit with you in the darkness. I'm I, me too. I can relate to what you're yeah. doing. I may not have the same exact experience, but I have something in my life that I have felt trapped by. I have something in my life that I have felt this feeling of despair and therefore I can understand you and I don't judge you for it. Pity is them and you, you know, you and them. And it's so easy for our society to think about them as, you know, hard, uh, hard drug users. They bring up heroin and cocaine and these things that have been criminalized. It's so easy for society to be like, well, that's them. But when you understand that we all have this ability to become addicted, um, I think that it will go a lot mm -hmm. farther. I mean, we can see what has happened with the criminalization of this. We have historical evidence to prove that the war on drugs is not working. It doesn't mean that I think that we should legalize it, but we're starting to follow. Um, and the program that was announced uh, by our president, where we did the story about how much you know, the $30 million that they have earmarked for understanding harm reduction is following what Portugal is doing. And Portugal is starting to fine people who have small amounts of drugs. You know, when they know that there isn't an intent to traffic it, they're actually uh, making sure that if somebody is found, that they are fined and they're hitting them where it hurts their money. And they are seeing really good results uh, with doing that. So that is something interesting too, to consider policy around it and what the article's intent was for people to be open to this conversation. Well, you know, it says, you know, it says in the article, 40.3 million people, 12 and older in the United States had had a substance use disorder in the past year. 
That's approximately 12% of the population. That's a right. lot of people. That is a lot That's of people. That's a lot of people. So you're talking, you know, you're talking, um, you know, you're talking 12 out of every hundred people. I mean, I think that the, you know, one of the things that's clear to me, and if you're listening to the show and if you, you know, if you, if you have recovered from addiction, one of the things that might really frustrate you like it does me is that you look around in the cities and you see addiction, especially in the homeless population yes. here in Los Angeles, just spin out of control. Right. And right. you know that people are trapped. And there never really seems to be a good way to get people out. And this always comes to this always comes to my theory. It's not the money that really has the success. It's the community. Yes. Right? Like it's the community. And this this leads into the study. This scientifically proves that, that it's this community of people that you come into. It's the community that helps you get sober. It's this pure, it's this pure uh relationships that help you. Uh, transition out of that addictive state to be able to move into recovery. And I love that, but you know, it does take money obviously to build communities. These, these are for free, sure. but they're the cheapest of all the scenarios. And this is the crazy thing about this is that when we look around about all the treatment, we hear things like empathy. Well, empathy is a lot, you know, we could do empathy at scale, Christina. Absolutely. We, we can do empathy at scale. We don't, we don't need, you know, public policies to be able to do that. The community itself can make that happen. Yes. And if your life has been touched by addiction, whether it's yourself or a family member, because I know we actually have a huge codependent population um, and it's it's important we start talking about it. It's important that we not hide oh, I am a worse human being or my family is cursed because we have addiction, you know, issues to something that is considered illegal. When we could start having that empathy and realize it's a human brain condition, I think that we'll have much quicker ways to go out and support people when we quit separating ourselves from them. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it, it it's like it's it's funny because sometimes we say the old ways of treating addiction. You know, there's been a lot of you know we talk about this a lot in the recovered life discussions that there's a lot of people that do not like twelve step groups. Like I'll, right. I'll be, like there's a lot of people that are in the community. I'm not one of those. I, I I think that they're amazing and they've been very beneficial for me. And I would not be here if it was not for those. But I right. but there's a lot of pushback on that because they're quote old. That it's it's yes. stuff from the 30s, it's stuff from the 20s, it's stuff from the 40s. They don't, you know, people don't like that. But it's funny, the more science kind of proves out some of these, you know, icon statements that and 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 ideas that were formed around these 12 step groups. Isn't it true? I mean, we're talking about science that's basically discussing the phenomena of craving, and it's not a moral issue. It is not. I mean, yes, things contribute to it, but it's many things that contribute to it. And I thought about that immediately when I have discussed dopamine and what it's done. And it's where the leading edge, I mean, it's where the research is going to explain it. Peer support uh, groups work. You know, mm -hmm. for many years, AA was the one way that you could get sober. And I often have heard that, you know, 100 years from now, uh, they're not going to talk about the latest microchip as changing our society and elevating it. They're going to talk about 12 steps and how man figured out, you know, people figured out how to help themselves. 
Uh, and I think that's I would true. say that it's probably one of the, you know, the whole idea of linking spirituality and a higher power and recovery and willingness and all these factors that go into the, the, uh, in depth into addiction when they had really no scientific proof, exactly. right? No scientific, I, you know, I tell a story a lot, like to people who are new to recovery about how things have changed just in the several decades that I've been sober, just in a few decades, how I've been so sober, much. you know, there's a, there's a group here in Burbank, uh, a 12 step group in Burbank that, you know, used to detox people with caro syrup back right. in the fifties, because it's like it, you know, it was just so if you came out and you were hospitalized, it said that you had an alcohol issue mm -hmm. or you had, you had, you, you were detoxing on alcohol, trying to get sober. The stigma of you in the fifties would be horrible. Like you, exactly. you would, it would be, you can't control your liquor. Who are you? You're not a man. You're not a, right. Like there's all of these things that go with that. So in, in the society thing. And I think as, as those break up and we realize that this is really kind of a neuro issue too, right. and it's a public health issue. I think the more and more we get closer to this. Now I have to tell you, Christina, because you know, uh, you, you have a teenager and one of the things that I have seen with, uh, with people not understanding addiction, just thinking it's totally a moral thing, right. is this video game addiction with teens. I've seen parents now in discussions who don't know, like in social things, they don't know that I'm sober. They don't know that I'm mm -hmm. in recovery and doing the deal, right? And they'll talk about how their teen is addicted to video games. Right. Fortnite was one of the ones that I heard, right? Like this kid's addicted to Fortnite and there's something about him. Like it just clicks into his brain and the parents are talking all about really active addiction. They're talking sure. about active addiction and being in active addiction. And then they'll come out and they'll say, it's just like, we're just not being tough enough on him. We're just not being tough enough. If right. we were only tougher. And I just sit there and I listen and I go, wow, that's active addiction. Right. And they're starting to kind of see that it's like, well, maybe this isn't the kid's smart. The kid's doing this. The kid's great. Maybe this isn't just some sort of uh, willpower thing. Absolutely. And, and you know, that's why I think her comparing sugar and shopping. You know, yes. I, um, video games, there are, there's definitely some centers that are starting to include that. It is, you know, behavioral rehabs that help talk about it. It is a serious addiction. And it can affect somebody's life, but it also can be a sub addiction where there's still the solution of spirituality is really still the number one way, I believe. I, I, I do too. I do too. It, and it's this peer support. It's being able to get in there and have discussions about what's really going on with you. I love this article. Now, well, I will tell you at the end of it, there was a little shock here. There was, yes. there was a little surprise. And you, you want to announce that about what yes. they're actually talking about here? Yes. I was, so, I was so excited to see, you know, to discuss this with you. They are working on developing a vaccine against addiction at the University of Washington. This is the first time I've seen it in any of the news. Uh, and I can't imagine, like, I really can't put wrap my head around it. But won't we have an interesting world if they're able to do some of that? You know, I uh, I think it's a little dubious, to be quite honest with you. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I uh, I don't know how I feel about that. I have to be I have to be honest with you because one of the things that and let's be really honest here. I think you know as a sober coach, Christina, and mm -hmm. you and I work with people, right? Like so. As a sober coach, we know that some of this is neurological. It's just addiction is 
built yes. into a pattern. There might be trauma there. There might be things that are going on. And then there's a lifestyle to addiction, right? That especially people that get in when they're Absolutely. older and they've been doing this for years, they've been drinking for years. And this is just, a, it's, a, it's also a lifestyle. And then there's this physical component side, which it's talking about here. With, with this vet, with this vaccine. But we also know that there's some, this, this spiritual issue that they talk about in the 12 steps and this higher power issue too, that has a lot to do with this. I, I don't see how you put that component in, in, into a vaccine. And if they can, exactly. I must be way not educated about what's going on with science, but, um, and that's totally possible. But I, I, that's where I find this to be uh, a bridge too far for me a lot of the time, right? <laughs> Uh, and here's the thing, uh, would I, would I want the vaccine and what does that mean? Cause I've heard this forever in 12 step groups. Like we would go out for fellowship or something and said, well, if there was a vaccine or if there was some sort of medicine that you could take and you would no longer be, you would no longer have an alcohol problem. Would you choose to drink socially? Right. Would right. you choose to do all this other kind of stuff? And I don't know. I always found that the wrong conversation. To be honest would, with you, really? I was just like, going, well, why would I want? Yeah, because like if I because for me and th this has been my experience and this is why I think this is a little uh, this is where I always think this goes a little too far with science. And typically when you dive into this, no one has ever recovered from addiction. Typically, yes. when you, I'm not saying that with this. I don't know. But typically, this is what you see when you when you talk to scientists about this. Um, what what I find is that like alcoholics relationships with alcohol does not change if you are sober. So right. for example, I'm just gonna, I'm going to make this statement. My relationship and how I look at alcohol is, has not changed since I've been sober. I don't look at alcohol to say, wow, wouldn't it be nice to have a beer and right. relax and watch the baseball no. game? No, I don't want to do that. I want to have mm -hmm. five cases of beer. I want to have it flowing. I want to, you know what I mean? Like, that's not how I think about alcohol. I don't see how any drug would ever change that. Right. Well, I, I just, I just don't see that. Plus there's the whole question, you know, I was thinking of the same thing that, you know, has been brought up because I have come through the 12 step process. Would you choose to drink if you could drink normally? And I agree with you. I wouldn't choose to drink, but you're missing out on all of the spiritual growth, all of the things. Yes. So I was thinking about, when I was 27 and alcohol, uh, you know, came in and I started using in an alcoholic way, everything that I learned from that, would that be wiped out? You know, would that not be an option for yeah. me to have? And I wouldn't trade it. I really wouldn't well, trade it. Well, that's the Because when you drink, what we know, here's what we do know, right, Christina? And this isn't scientific. This is just uh, observation. Like you can get a lot just from being an alcoholic and working with alcoholics. When you start to drink and you're an alcoholic, the, the, in my opinion, and from what I have observed, the spiritual journey stops. Yes. You might live, you might not drink yourself to death. You might not have any negative responses to it beyond that. Right. But every time I have seen, right, I have seen the spiritual er journey ends. It, it does. Ends. So I don't see how any medicine or how any quote vaccine, uh, I, I'd use that lightly because I, I just, the whole idea with vaccine uh, in, in that connotation, I think is just a little disturbing, honestly, personally, because you're saying then that this is some sort of disorder, biological, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know.
it would be, you know, I, I kind of wondered if it's something that'll be like an abuse. It would have to change some kind of mental function and interrupt that. And it seems a little, it seems a little far-fetched and a little more about a, uh, adjusting the brain's function. And I'm not sure that would be something that I would want because I really got so many gifts. Yes, yes. And I mean, here's a here's the thing that I think is interesting because we've seen these anabuses, we've seen them come, and you know, that's a whole other show. We could talk about wacko, you know, wacko cures for alcoholism. That should just be a show that we do. And I didn't even tell you this, Christina, but I got some, you know, all the time I get these emails saying, Hey, I'd love to be a guest on the show. Um, mm -hmm. I found out by, you know, grating beets down and mixing them with a natural organic carrot or something crazy that you could cure addiction, right? And right. within two weeks, like there's always been these things, you know, and, and, you know, people talk about them, you know, they talked about them in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous about right. all these cures and stuff that were happening. And, you know, the whole premise of that was how did these people get sober? Like how did this group of a hundred people or whatever get sober? So it's, it's interesting. And look, I, I'm all for trying to figure out a better way and a right. scientific way. And, you know, look, we found, we talk about it all the time. We know that sugar is not good after, after a portion uh, after that detox period, we right. know j just from, from being in the deal that we know that that really alters your thinking in a way that could bring you closer to a relapse, uh, not closer to not drinking. Sure. Sure. It'll be interesting to come and I'm sure we will be sharing it as we get the news. So definitely a really beautiful article. Make sure you go and connect to it through the show notes. Absolutely. You know what? I just want to say thank you so much for bringing that to us. We're going to put a, a link to the show in the show notes on this article for the U.S. News and World Report. Let empathy inform our approach to addiction. Uh, this is an uh, this is an article by Diane Christian. We want to give her credit. Uh, thank you so much for writing that, Diane. It was mm -hmm. a really, really good discussion. So we've got much more show ahead, Christina, much more. We always <laughs> bring you total value on here on Friday. But before we do, before we go into uh, our second segment here, um, I wanted to talk about the recovered life community. Uh, you know, we brought about this earlier about how we are, we have this thriving community that helps you live your best recovered life. And you can access it totally for free by going to recoveredlife.us. That's recoveredlife.us. And you can access contributors and experts like Christina Dennis and myself. You can access a peer group support people that are there talking about the deal, doing the deal. You can also access all of this exclusive content and you can get this all for free by going to recoveredlife.us. And before we go on, I would like to also thank all of the new people who have joined. This last week, we had a lot of new people come into the community. Welcome. We're so glad you're there. So when we come back, Christina, after this quick break, we're going to talk TGIF Sober. Ooh. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. Much more show ahead. Hold tight. We'll be back in 30 seconds. You're listening to the Recovered Life Show. Welcome back to the Recovered Life Show. Thank you for sticking it out with us. Before we get started on TGIF, 
sober, I want to let everybody know that this segment is being brought to you by Recovered Life contributors and people like you. So make sure to follow, like, share, and leave us a comment so we can keep bringing content that you enjoy, as well as hop on over to info.recoveredlife.us. You can leave a donation that keeps us going and helps us continue to help others and join the network. So that is info.recoveredlife.us. Oh, Thank you so much, Christina Dennis, for mentioning that. You know, um, we just love p- seeing people on the network like we just discussed. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we'd like to thank is all the Recovered Life contributors that help make this possible for the information, the support, and viewers like you guys. Uh, you know, keeping this on the podcast, keeping this on there. This is a huge venture mm-hmm. for us. Christina and I put a ton of time into this to try to bring you really great content. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know. They listen. You know, a lot of people are joining through Instagram, and they right. don't know about all this other stuff that we have going on. And that's why we do TGIF Sober. It's we call it the cocktail party without the hangover with people that you want to actually spend time with, Uh, because we talk about the week in recovery and about what we did and what's going on in recovered life. And a lot of people don't know, Christina, is like we've got beyond the recovered life show, which goes live three days a week. We've got four other one hour discussions that are happening on Clubhouse uh, every week. And they're so good. Please make sure you join us there. Um, This week, we had a beautiful beginning. Monday, we started talking about surrender and surrendering to the flow of life. These are the kind of conversations where you can come in, ask your questions, or share a little bit about yourself and what you have recently surrendered. And I brought the book, The Surrender Experiment, which is from Michael Singer. And it is an amazing tell. Now, he's not necessarily an addiction, but it was a book that was recommended to me uh, within a room that the main focus was on finances. And the entire book is about letting the life flow, being ready, staying curious. And so we just had a beautiful conversation about how we've learned to do that while we're in recovery, how we've ceased fighting anyone or anything, how acceptance is actually the answer to our frustration and our resistance. And I I loved it. Some beautiful people. I love that. I am so, I am so sorry that I missed that one because I will tell you, I have found, and this is just my personal experience that after you get sober, and I would say definitely a decade in, I would say Mm -hmm. when you get about that to that 10 year thing, a lot of the work is letting go. Yes. It's just, it's, it's letting go of these past ideas, letting go of what you think things should be just letting go, right? Just letting go, relaxing and letting go, which I find maddening. I'm just, I'm going to be honest with you, Chris. I I find it. And that's why I love these discussions on recovered life is because Um, other people find it maddening too. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. We have this idea that we should know how to relax, but rarely do we know how to do that. Rarely do we know how to accept our lives and ourselves. And one thing that I really enjoyed about the book is that uh, this is a yogi who decided to dedicate his life to the practice of meditation and higher consciousness. And about 10 years into his journey, he recognized that he was trying to separate himself 
right? He was trying to release who he was and what he really needed to do was bring in who he was. And that whole idea of the human experience, which means that we're not gonna know how to do this 100% and we're gonna be uncomfortable is exactly what he was sharing. And I loved it and wanted to, to say, wow, that's what I learned in recovery. Well, I'll tell you, um, I love the idea of bringing in non-recovery based topics uh, to the discussion, into the healing. You know, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but I have a men's mastermind group uh, that we have on Thursday nights, and it's been going on for a, a couple of years now since mm -hmm. the pandemic called old school. And that's what we do. And, and Thursday last night, we discussed uh, a something from Michael Bernard Beckwith, who, you know, again, is not in recovery. But he was talking about he was talking about spiritual principles that really got it. It showed another light to it. It, it, right. it you know we were talking about victimhood last right. night, and and it showed a different side of it. You know, uh, where twelve steps or maybe a therapist or something will talk about that in a way, a yogi or a spiritual person. They don't have to be in recovery for no. you to get that recovery message out of it. So, so true. And, and lots of people came in who were new in recovery and older, you know, they've been around like you and I, they were old dogs and they shared about the whole idea of accepting themselves as a total human, you know, and what that looked like. And it's, it's very, very important. And you're right. Having people around that share the truth and are willing to discuss more than just the highlights is truly a supportive and wonderful atmosphere to be in. The next day, it's funny that you brought up, you know, non-recovered books. We went through uh, in our book study, the uh, book that Brene Brown just uh, produced or wrote mm -hmm. and, and uh, mm -hmm. sent to the market. It's called The Atlas of the Heart. And it's talking about true deep connection. And there were some things that came out of that discussion and the, that chapter that really helped me uh, understand, you know, kind of how COVID has affected us and how empathy is learned. We just discussed that in the last yeah. segment and how you can learn it. And, you know, compassion and compassion includes an action. And it was just, it was such a beautiful conversation, but she brought up this topic as, as one of the final, um, you know, uh, ways to connect with people is comparative suffering and how comparative suffering doesn't work. And it's so true that in COVID we have as a society, because we had so much grief to, to kind of process and work through, and we're still grieving, it really became almost commonplace to assess and rank people's grief and how that doesn't really help anybody. Right. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that we were talking about in that room that you brought up in that room that I like is ranking the grief. Right. And I found that so interesting because we do that, right? Like, so we say, you use this experience of like, well, I had to cancel my wedding. And then somebody's like, well, my husband of, you know, 15 years died or whatever. Like, right. it's like, well, I don't want to mention that I had to cancel this event, but I'm really sad about it. Right. Like uh -huh. I have a friend who travels a lot and, um, he was going through huge grief that he could no longer travel. Sure. You know, I have family members who are older and they're thinking, well, you know what? Hey, during COVID, it's like, is this it? Is this a lot? I can't go see what my life was going to be like. And you're right. I think it's like we do. We rank the grief out as if this grief is more important than this grief. 
So true. And then she talks about the disservice to ourselves and to each other because yeah. empathy and compassion, they're, they're limitless. And it doesn't help the person that you said, yay, you're the winner. You have the most grief. It doesn't help them for you to withhold yeah. grief from others. It actually elevates us all as a human race to have grief to have compassion and empathy for all losses. And we talked about you know, disenfranchised grief uh, last week and how dangerous it is. And I just think you know, this is a global uh, issue now where we can't withhold compassion from somebody because we've made a decision that their Correct. grief isn't. And it's a way to, for us to hold compassion with ourselves, withhold it, to be like, well, here I am complaining and there's a war going on and, you know, I don't really have any problems. It's so not true. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like when, you know, when I look at the, when I look at compassion and I look at people in other areas outside of addiction treatment, right? And I look at like, well, how do these people deal with compassion? Like when you're talking about spiritual leaders and things like mm -hmm. that, they they have a level of compassion level of compassion that seems and it's like I, I love that because i do think that a lot of times we just kind of push aside uh people if we don't relate to that compassion right i know right. i i'm guilty of that i i really am it's like a lot of times i'm like oh man really seriously you're griping about that like i had a sure. friend the other day was griping about like he didn't really like what was going on with, with some career thing that he had and i'm like man you make a ton of money and you have a ton of time <laughs> off and you're complete right and but for him the loss was very real for him Yes. Right. Like, and, and I thought, you know, that's, I, I, I need to be more compassionate with that. I do right. this whole leading. I guess this would be the theme of Friday here is like leading with compassion. Right. So and true. everything that we're and, talking about empathy and realizing that you don't have to have the same experience as somebody else is having to show them empathy. You have to get in touch with your own sadness and, and recognize that they're having sadness and hurt is hurt. Hurt is hurt and acknowledging that they have hurt, even if it seems like a small thing for you. Um, you know, I, I went through this with having a special needs child. I will openly say that I struggled sometimes when people complained about their children talking too much because I have a nonverbal yeah. son and I would get angry. And, and I recognize that that was telling me that I needed to work on my acceptance and stay curious about what the lesson is that is happening for me and my son and my situation and not judge their situation. So, and compassion is not judgment. It's one of the, it's one of the easiest ways to do it. So if now hearing that I need to speak up about my own grief and my own sadness and recognize that other people have that. But if we don't do that for ourselves, we won't have it to give to other people. Well, I think a lot of people say, well, how do I get to this compassionate state? Because I don't relate to what's going on with these people. Like I, you know, and I, I know, you know, I found this in, in coaches like this, like, I think gratitude is the gateway yes. to compassion is to be being compassion is to be being great at. And this is, this is, this is the key is just to be able to look around you to see what is going on. One of the things that we discussed in the Thursday room, which we're going to get to is that there, there's a bit of a narcissistic approach 
to us in life, especially with victimhood and things, is okay. that we're, we're, it's all about us. It's all about us. Mm -hmm. It's all about us all the time. And I think one of the things, you know, one of the big breakthroughs in recovery that you get, I think there's a lot of spiritual breakthroughs, right? Uh, uh, enlightenments, at least in my, in, in my experience there was, but one of the first big ones that I ever got was it's not all about you. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not all about you. There's a whole world that's going on that knows nothing about what's going on. There's, there's other things that are going on. There's other people that have, they have their own agenda and their own things that they want, their own losses and feelings about things that it's not all about you. Right. And so, so it's true. like learning how to set up those boundaries within that I think is just gold. And I, that's why I love the discussions because I'll tell you, one of the things that you brought to the table here with Recovered Life, Christina, is that the people who come in that are suffering from codependency, this is a struggle. It is. And I think it's even more of a struggle who than, you know, because people who come in with alcoholism and drug addiction, it's much more defined. But I think it's very blurry with codependency when you first come in. It's very hard to see. You know whether you're drinking or not drinking. You right. know whether you're using drugs or not using drugs. It's very hard to understand if the compassion's gone too far, if you're mm -hmm. being, you know what I'm saying? Like those boundaries uh, and the discussions about those, I think are super fulfilling. Well, we talked about boundaries on Wednesday. Our recovered life discussion is setting healthy boundaries. And we we don't live in a country that really affords boundaries. And uh, the enmeshment tends to be the, the more standard way of operating within a family system. And if you are a recovering person or have a substance abuse disorder, chances are you have codependency. And even codependency could be mm -hmm. the thing that you're treating with the substance. I know in my case, that's what was happening. I had this inability to know where I ended and somebody else began. And if you don't know that, there can be no compassion. And compassion is empathy with action. And so the whole idea, she had this quote that I think is beautiful, which is, um, you know, the distance between, boundaries are the distance in which I can love you and them, me, simultaneously. I love that. I love and that. And boundaries are the rules. So, so often when we bring up the word boundaries, we all figure out what's not okay. And, you know, we all focus on, well, that wasn't okay. But there's a whole side of setting boundaries and working on your codependency that really tells somebody this is okay in the relationship. This is not okay in the relationship. And so boundaries can be a bridge because they supply the rules of operation. And until we know our own self, we don't know how to really set healthy boundaries. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that um, one of the things that's been great about these recovered life discussions and recovered life in general is you start to realize that alcohol and drugs with families, it used to be the whole ACOA thing, right? Like right. that there was some sort of, it's really not that it's dysfunction. Yes. If there's a level of dis if we're going to take like what's present in everything, people will say, well, you know, like my parents drank a little bit or they or they drank a lot dysfunctionally or they were always in jail or always had, you know, money issues or whatever. There was always fighting. It's really this level of dysfunction. And yes. I think that this is the thing that's out is like there's this learned behavior of this dysfunction of what, well, this is where we feel comfortable. So right. the boundaries are hard to set because we feel people with addiction issues 
feel comfortable, and especially codependents, they feel comfortable in chaotic situations Absolutely. before recovery. I know I did. Like I did great in chaos. Chaos yes. and, and me were friends. Now it, it makes me sick to my stomach. Now I can't, I can't handle it for, for a period of time, right? I have to like check out and say no more on that. Like mm -hmm. I have to set a firm boundary because living in recovery being able to operate in chaos, I, it just does not, it does not do it for me. No, no, the nervous system is, has been healed. And so therefore it can't tolerate it. And, you know, the autonomy and authority that you get when you first get sober, uh, you know, is great. And I think it's beautiful because it brings us through that really, really rough period. But later on, you realize I have to operate in this world. I have to figure out what this relationship is. And exactly. you know, alcohol and drugs are often the solution for us in the beginning. They are what numbs us out and allows us to operate within enmeshment and operate in a level that is chaotic. And so when they're taken away, we can no longer tolerate the chaos. But the thing that's important is to realize that conversations like this are necessary. Having thought processes and going deep and within oneself is necessary so that you can learn what works for you. Yes. So you have yes. your own boundaries for yourself. What works, what doesn't work. And I think that that is the key to spiritual maturity. It really is. And, you know, and I think that's, you know, leads into Thursday in my unstuck room. We had a great conversation about dealing with pressure without relapse how to, mm -hmm. how to kind of, how to be in, because, you know, look, I, I'm going to be honest, like I deal with a lot of high performance people. I deal you with a lot do. of people who are coming into recovery and they are, uh, they're in business or they've got, a, they have a rather big life, right? And that they, they have pressure. And, you know, if you were using drugs and alcohol to deal with pressure and that was your release valve and no, you can no longer do that. How do you deal with stressful situations and pressure in recovery and not relapse. And this was a great conversation because I'll tell you, we had people that were in the room that were dealing with real life stuff like deaths, breakups, mm -hmm. huge. And they were in the first couple years of recovery, right? Like, so th this is, th these are such valuable conversations. One of the big takeaways, Christina, with this, which was, which was good was the level that you had to be honest with yourself is to just really yes. be able to have acceptance to say, yes, this is stressful. This is, mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, denying it to say, well, I can handle anything or, uh, this is no big deal, or I'm just going to ignore this and blot this out. Yes. Compartmentalization is dangerous and it doesn't allow us to, and it doesn't allow us to move forward the hope that's necessary to grow a big, beautiful life. And I've had years of pressure. And one of the things that I know doesn't work is denying that I'm having feelings about the pressure, denying that it's really affecting me. And it was one of my survival skills, you know, as a child in a traumatic home, in a home that was, you know, full of dysfunction. One of the ways that I survived that was to disassociate from my feelings because I didn't have the maturity or the tools to work through them. 
Then, you know, I went into the alcoholism years and that's how I coped. And once that was taken away and it was hurting me more than it was helping me, I had to figure out how to get these tools. And I learned them in rooms like Recovered Life Discussion. I learned them by having a coach and a therapist and a sponsor to help me walk through and totally accept that I'm a sensitive person and I get angry sometimes and this too will pass. But if I don't actually acknowledge yes. that there is something to pass, then I've never really dealt with the grief about it. Well, I think one of the things too, and I and I and I will tell you this: this is kind of a, a guy thing. One of the things with people with long-term sobriety with guys, it's a very big thing to kind of be tough yes. and to be very blunt, right? And we we're talking mm -hmm. about empathy. We're talking about this, but there is a there is kind of if we we're going to stereotype people that are in recovery, especially recovery treatment. There are a lot of men that mm -hmm. are my age, right? That they, they take a very kind of blunt approach to it. Right. And I get this. Sure. And one of the reason I think why is because people in recovery are very sensitive. And I'm going to tell you this, like, I know there's so much going on in the world right now. And if you're listening to this in the podcast, you might be feeling this and I don't want to get too metaphysical here, but I will tell you at night and stuff, like when I'm quiet, like I could feel there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on and, and we are receptors. We're like little lightning rods to this. Totally. Right. And I think we have to be really like what you're sharing. We share in the room is to be really kind of in touch and to acknowledge that we're having those feelings. We don't always have to figure those feelings out because those feelings will come and go. But right. to say, yeah, I'm having, I'm anxious. Like, and I don't know why. I'm anxious mm -hmm. and I don't know why, right? Like, uh, like I know I've been ill this week. Like I was sick on Wednesday. I was anxious because I wanted sure. to do the show. I want to do a bunch of stuff. I told you, it's like, wow, I'm feeling a little anxious today. Uh, just by being able to communicate that kind of stuff, this is really, I think, the road to recovery. It so is. And and knowing skills for self-care and recognizing what works for you. And it takes discovery and investigation, and it is worth every ounce of effort that you put into it. It is worth the journey, guys. So if you're not yet on the journey, if you're listening to this, get into the journey, get on the path, get on the path. Yeah. Let's do, do the deal. This has been a great show, Christina. And uh, I know we went a little bit long today, but I would like to thank everybody that's listening right now on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, guys, you are such a huge part of the show. Thank you. If you're not a member of Recovered Life, please go to info.recoveredlife.us and you can get access to Christina and myself. You can uh, There's a link there to be able to join the network and we hope to see you there. Any final thoughts on this uh, Friday, wrapping up yeah. episode 95, Christina? Any, any uh, final thoughts? Just uh, take care of you, boo, over the weekend. Take care of there you. There you go. There you go. Right. We hope to connect with everybody on Recovered Life. Guys, please like, follow, and share the show. It means so much for us. Episode 95, Friday, April 8th, 2022, in the can. We'll see you on Monday. Bye. Keep the conversation going. Join Recovered Life, a community of like-minded people who are looking to live community of like-minded people who are looking to live their best recovered lives. Membership is free and you can apply at recoveredlife.us.